This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spomelele Zundi. We are broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa, and you can find us on frequency nine six two five kilohertz on the thirty one meter band to Southern Africa and on eight zero two on the DSTV audio bouquet. With me in studio is Joala Netulo, Wisani Matebula, and Nedot Cheman is also in studio. Top stories on Africa Digest. Amnesty International says the upcoming UN summit rather is unlikely to have any significant impact on the grave humanitarian crisis. The situation remains tense in Gabon as a presidential challenger, Jean Bing, and his followers continue to dispute the re-election of Ali Bongo. In economics, Shell's Nigerian unit lifts force majeure on natural gas supplies to Nigeria Liquefied Natural Gas Corporation. In sports, International Cricket Council has rejected a two-test championship. Here's Joala Natulo with your news. Thank you, Spumelele. Good afternoon. Zimbabwe's High Court has ruled that a two-week ban by police on protests was illegal. The court said it was suspended for a week after a challenge by political activists who had claimed the move violated their rights. Police in the Southern African nation issued an official notice last Thursday prohibiting all demonstrations of the capital Harare after anti-government protests descended into some of the worst violence seen in two decades. Meanwhile, Zimbabwe's Human Rights Commission has found that the ruling ZANU-PF party is distributing food based on affiliation. Following investigation into complaints of partisan distribution in five districts, the commission says it found what it called unbridled maladministration by some public officials and that village heads and community leaders were also biased in favor of members of the parties. A report released today says food aid was denied to those children affiliated to the opposition. Zimbabwe is facing its worst drought in decades that has left over 4 million people in need of food aid. Nigeria's army says it has arrested militants suspected of working with the Niger Delta Avengers, the NDA, including their leader at the weekend. The trio was arrested for conducting sabotage activities against the country's oil and gas facilities. A fourth man suspected of being responsible for an attack on a pipeline operated by the Nigerian Petroleum Development Company and Nigerian Energy Company Shoreline in August was detained in Edo State in southern Nigeria on Tuesday. South Africa's Opposition Democratic Alliance MPs have repeatedly asked Mineral Resources Minister Museben Zizwani in Parliament to explain why he issued a statement on behalf of Cabinet regarding a judicial probe into South Africa's banks and their decision to halt business with the Guptas. The presidency later distanced itself from Zwani's statement. The DA members have accused Speaker Balekambete of being biased and of protecting Zwani. DA leader Musimaimani. If we can't ask questions of ministers about points they communicate to the South African public, putting us at fiscal risk, then this entire institution is a complete joke and you are making it such to be one. Can I prevail on you to ask that minister to answer the simple question? 
And still in South Africa, Home Affairs Minister Malusi Gikaba handed out special permits for Lesotho nationals in Rustenburg in the northwest province this morning. The special permit is issued for Lesotho nationals who work, study or do business in South Africa and have been in the country in such capacity before the 30th of September this year. Home Affairs spokesperson Maitlo Metrede says the purpose of the program is to document people in the country. Documentation is a is a critical step in people having the rights that uh, that are enshrined to them in the constitution. What we have found is that when there's exploitation of people that is going to happen, it happens when people are undocumented. The minister was reaching out to people in Rustenburg um, to to come forward and take advantage of these last two weeks to apply for the Lesotho special permit and make sure that they they regularize their stay. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. Thanks very much, Ola. It is 1705 Central African time. Now, Amnesty International says the upcoming UN summit on migrants and refugees is highly unlikely to have any significant impact on the grave humanitarian crises in many countries. This as despite agreeing to sharing the burden of refugees. Many of the world's leading industrialized and emerging economies, G20 countries, are not shouldering their fair share. Amnesty is concerned that G20 members are saying one thing in public and another behind closed doors. Audrey Goran, who is the Director of Global Issues at Amnesty International, elaborates. Yes, we've heard what the G20 has said, of course, that they want to share the responsibility for the world's refugees. But what they're saying and then what's actually happening in practice are two very, very different things. There are 20 million or just over 20 million refugees in the world and the vast majority are in low and middle income countries. So the wealthiest countries, of which the G20 is obviously a grouping, are actually taking the fewest refugees in. As I say, what we're concerned about is they're saying one thing, but the actual evidence is they're not sharing responsibility and they're leaving that with a small group of countries who are in some cases carrying very large numbers. So, for example, Lebanon has more than one million refugees from Syria. Now, Audrey, it seems that with the highly anticipated UN Summit on Refugees and Migrants later this month in New York, it may fail in resulting in an agreement from all member states as far as burden sharing is concerned and which we think is really the most important issue in addressing the crisis, especially in Europe. Would you agree with that? I I would definitely agree that responsibility sharing is amongst States is absolutely the key to solving the global refugee crisis because there are different crisis situations in different parts of the world. And yes, the UN summit that's coming up on the 19th of September is unfortunately going to be a very, very sorry disappointment. The member states have not come up with any solid agreement. They have pushed off the idea of developing a global compact on refugees. They've pushed that to 2018. And so we're left essentially with the status quo, which is countries 
like Jordan, Lebanon and Turkey hosting between them close to 5 million refugees, while other countries take very, very few from the Syria conflict. But we also see countries like Ethiopia and Kenya are carrying very large refugee populations. And again, I'd emphasize it's the richest countries in the world who are actually taking in the fewest people relative to their wealth. Why do you think that these countries, like you said, are promising to take action, but they're not doing exactly what they've promised to do? I think that there are a number of different things here. One is politics in some countries where politicians believe that the population of the country doesn't want to accept more refugees and and asylum seekers, which we've done a survey as Amnesty to show that there's actually much more support for refugees than maybe some politicians believe. But in any case, when confronted with such large movements of refugees from, from serious conflicts, in any case, governments have to come together and share the responsibility for that. But we also think what we're witnessing is countries saying, well, It's the problem of the neighboring countries using just basic geography as their default position. So if you happen to be a country neighboring a country in conflict, then the refugees are your problem, which is a fairly morally problematic response to a serious humanitarian crisis. And this is what Amnesty is working on at the moment. And finally, Audrey, like I said earlier, the upcoming UN summit, there seems to be this expectation that it will solve the um, global refugee and migrant crisis. And it's really unfortunate that we have to wait for such a summit to take place and to see if action is taken. What as Amnesty would you like to see happen moving forward? Well, what we'd really like to see moving forward is that the countries of the world come together and agree a sensible way of sharing responsibility for the global refugee population, which is just over 20 million people. And if all countries took a fair share of the 20 million people, then no one country would be overwhelmed. So that's that's our primary call, much better responsibility sharing. But I have to say that the UN summit is going to be a, a very significant disappointment because the member states have already negotiated and essentially not agreed to do anything tangible. So we've seen that the, what's coming up in September, we see that as, as highly unlikely to make any real impact on the grave humanitarian crises that we are seeing in a number of places. And that's Audrey Gorin, who's the Director of Global Issues at Amnesty International, and she was talking to Jane Robotata there. It's 17.10 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spumelele Zondi. I'm with you until 1800 hours Central African Time. Find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. It is Channel Africa One. If you prefer sending us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. Now, the situation throughout Gabon remains tense as presidential challenger Jean Ping and his followers continue to dispute the re-election of incumbent President Ali Bongo. President Bongo has resisted calls for a recount of votes cast in the country's presidential election, rather, saying he has no power to order one. European Union observers have said there was an obvious anomaly in election results that showed Bongo narrowly defeating challenger Jean Ping. The African Union has since announced it is ready to help the parties resolve their problems and has since announced it is ready to um, to assist there and reach a rapid settlement to the post-election chaos. Now joining us on the line is Kaylin Birch, a political analyst at the Economic Intelligence Unit in London. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Kaylin. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Um, Kaylin, should there be a recount um, in Gabon? Well, it's a complicated question. Um, it would be the, 
the idea of a recount could potentially be the one factor that would shift kind of the tensions that we're seeing at the moment. Um, there's really a, a political standoff that we see between Jinping and Ali Bongo and their camps with neither side willing to concede, really, with Bongo insisting that um, a recount is against Gabonese law and Ping insisting that um, that the results from um, Mr. Bongo's home province were fabricated and where that's where we saw the turnout of about 99.93%, so quite strong. Um, that is something that maybe could, you know, to have a recount of the votes that would that would change the situation, perhaps either fuel protests among the opposition or or reinforce um, the government's stance. However, I don't think that we're likely to see that. The government's been absolutely clear that it's against Gabonese law, and that the question um, falls to the constitutional court whether or not there's going to be a chance to um, review or potentially um, call a recount. Mm. Um, and is it against Gabonese law? Do we know that? Well, yeah, that's a good question. Um, There's no um, element of the law, to my knowledge, that requires the publication of uh, bureau-by-bureau polling data, and that's, from what I've seen so far, what the administration is relying on. There's also absolutely no precedent for this sort of a situation, where there's been both this much scrutiny on the results, um, as well as such a clear disparity between the turnout in the Ougoué, which is the home province of the president, and the rest of the country, where we saw 99% and then about 48% on a national average. Mm. Um, so, Jean Ping here, what um, uh, what options does he have? Because he's he's refusing to accept these results. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the best option for Mr. Ping supporters would be to await the decision of the African Union um, observer mission that's going to be coming in. There's some concern that the mission of the the group itself has not been defined, whether it's going to be as a mediation tool solely or if they're going to make recommendations on the whether or not to have a recount. Um, but I think that's going to be the major pressure uh, that we could see coming in. We've already seen calls from the American authorities, French authorities, EU authorities. As you said, um, the EU mentioned there was obvious anomalies in terms of the um, polling data, particularly from that one province. Um, so we've seen kind of real concerns raised on a number of different fronts. Um, I think the probably the best option, as I said, is going to be this AU observer mission to find some sort of um, break in the impasse. But I would I would be very surprised if the AU observer mission um, really put heavy pressure on the administration in the absence of another few days of really serious protests. Um, just because there also is no precedent for that. We saw sort of a similar situation with the election in neighboring Congo Brazzaville earlier this year where there's a lot of electoral disparities in terms of the kind of questions about the validity of the results and not too much pressure coming from the AU observers there as well. So um, I think Mr. Ping kind of has truly limited options at the moment. Um, If the mission is not defined, um, why are they there? What do they say they're there for? Well, in a statement uh, from earlier this week, uh, the president of Chad has said that the idea is to come in and kind of find a solution to to the impasse. Um, that's, as you can imagine, quite a vague statement. And, um, and now the observer mission, to my knowledge, is not there yet. They're kind of mobilizing, and they are expected to have a few heads of state of different African nations. So in the next couple of days, there will be a crystallization of the kind of the main objective of this group. 
but at the moment it's probably going to be some sort of, you know, finding a chance to bring together the opposition and the administration kind of supporters um, to find uh, potentially some sort of discussion, at least to open a dialogue, which at the moment doesn't exist. Right now we're just seeing kind of different attacks being exchanged in international media between Mr. Bongo and Mr. Ping. So to at least have a conversation going is already a step in the right direction. Mm. Um, are there time limits here um, from any group, including the African Union, um, of when they uh, they can say what they think the, the solution is? I don't think there's a time limit placed on the AU observer mission. Um, the one time limit that's approaching very quickly is that, from what we've heard, there's a deadline by this Thursday, so by tomorrow, um, for the opposition to file a formal complaint with the Constitutional Court in order to challenge the results. Um, however, that would imply that the opposition recognizes that the results of the count are valid, and then they then file a complaint to kind of have them reviewed. At the moment, Mr. Ping and his supporters are demanding a recount bureau by bureau, an initial kind of review of the data without recognizing that those are officially the results of the election. So my understanding is that the opposition doesn't even want to kind of acknowledge them by lodging that complaint. But the deadline is closing, and there's a risk that if they don't file a formal complaint that they're going to lose the one legal option that is enshrined in Gabonese law to formally contest the results. Mm. Um, And in Gabonese law, do we know what happens um, between voting and the announcement of results and rather the swearing in of of the president? Does Gabon have a precedent at, at the moment? At the moment, what we saw, and this was part of the reason um, for the large-scale protests that broke out following the announcement of the results, um, was that there was a closed-door discussion of the results um, between the, or amongst the uh, Electoral Commission, the CENAP, known as CENAP by the French acronym. Um, so we see it's a kind of a, I think, about 30-member commission that reviewed the results. Some of the results at a provincial level were published and were uh, international observers were allowed to be present at the um, announcement of the results at a provincial level, and then uh, at others they were not. So with Mr. Bongo's home province, with the announcement of the results, international observers were not part of the discussion. And then at the CNAP level for the Electoral Commission to discuss the formal results and and announce the winner of the election, um, it was a closed-door session. And that was a lot of the reason why we're seeing these calls for um, Uh, of electoral fraud from opposition supporters. Also, the fact that the results were a day late to be announced is another major concern. Um, When we had some of the provincial data available shortly after the election and then other areas still missing, and then with a 24-hour delay in the announcement, that's just fueled uh, concerns, really, that there was some sort of manipulation throughout the electoral process. Is is it the first time that um, the president of Gabon almost... um, didn't win didn't win an election because we do know that with the results that are being challenged now there was a very narrow margin Mm-hmm. Very narrow. And again, that's another reason that we've kind of seen such a strong outcry from um, out civil service and opposition groups. No, this is unprecedented. It's never been such a narrow margin of victory. Um, in the 2009 election, which brought Ali Bongo to power in the first place, the leading opposition candidate won just about 26% of the vote, uh, compared to Mr. Ping having won 48% by official counts. So there's never really been um, such a close contest. Part of that is the fact that we've never seen opposition candidates 
band together to support a single opposition figure heading into the election. And there was some concern that wouldn't even happen this time. Uh, we didn't see two of the leading opposition figures throw their support behind Jinping until just about 10 days before the actual election. So it was a last-minute kind of rallying cry, but it did work to build support behind um, behind the single opposition figure. And it's that narrow margin of victory that we see this time that I think has people questioning the validity of the results. Mm. Um, and if these results are deemed to be valid in the end, um, what then happens to Jinping? Does it go to opposition benches? Well, that I mean, there's been such a tough I and mean, like such a confrontational stance between the opposition and the administration now that assuming um, that the results do move forward and there is some sort of reconciliation process, it's only going to contribute to um, already strong underlying political tensions in Gabon. And that just highlights the fact that I think the main concern, whatever administration comes out of this, but assuming it's a, an administration led by Mr. Bongo, it's going to be um, the need to rebuild their credibility both domestically and internationally. And that's going to be a major challenge. Um, there's been such kind of the, when we looked at the widespread um, public protests that have been broken out in recent days, um, and just kind of the lack of of dialogue. The fact that the administration has refused categorically um, to publish uh, bureau by bureau polling data, I think, has undermined confidence, uh, whatever confidence was there among the opposition in you know for Mr. Bongo's administration is 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 weakened further. Um, on an international scale, um, when we have French, American, European authorities, and now the African Union coming in to mediate, um, that's also kind of a major underminer of the administration's credibility. So um, we have to remember as well, Gabon's facing a massive uh, economic crisis. Really, they've relied um, on oil for the entire economic development of the country. In the last seven years, we've seen under Mr. Bongo a real effort to ver- diversify But it's a long process, and they've only made initial progress um, and still are very, very reliant on oil and have seen public revenue fall quite sharply since 2014 as global oil prices have fallen. So that just adds additional pressure for the administration to to build up its international credentials should they ever have to turn to IMF or continue to rely on foreign funding. We have to remember the EU is a major, major partner, both in terms of trade, investment, um, aid, remittances from the um, diaspora. So those relationships are going to be key and, and they're looking shaky at the moment. Mm, and so do you think that um, that then their reliance on, on foreign funders is going to pretty much determine in the end um, what happens um, if, if foreign funders put the pressure on, on the president? It's possible that that could have an impact, but... Also, in the last few days, and we've seen pretty clear calls, again, with the EU saying there were clear anomalies in the election results, the administration hasn't bended uh, at all, really. So I'm not sure we're going to see more of a concession in the coming days unless protests were to really get more serious or continue in a way that was disrupting the economy. Um, I think, ultimately, the decision with the election is going to come down to national institutions, that is, the constitutional court um, issuing a ruling rather than foreign pressure. Um, I think it's really more of a concern in the aftermath once, uh, you know, a a consensus is reached at some stage. Mm. It's building up those ties afterward. Mm. Um, uh, We do know that in the past, the African Union has... Uh, faced a lot of criticism, especially in, in places like Burundi, for example, for not um, solving um, a political crisis there. Um, do you think that it it has the power um, to solve this um, a particular impasse in, in um, Gabon? It's a good question, really. We, Like you said, we haven't really seen precedent like that. We haven't seen kind of a strong... 
um, kind of entry into the negotiation process by an EU, uh, sorry, an AU uh, observer mission that um, clearly influenced the results. Uh, just a few months ago, again, in Congo-Brazzaville, we saw only kind of moderate pressure apply, applied by the AU. Um, it's possible that they could. There has to be some sort of impact, sorry, um, kind of middle ground because there's there's just going to be no way. I think what we're going to see are potentially closed-door discussions to find some sort of inroad um, to the opposition stance. So um, it's definitely something that's going to be necessary. Both camps have said they would welcome the AU delegation, that it would engage with the delegation. Um, this, as I said, is a step forward, um, but it's not clear that the crisis will be resolved, certainly not in the coming days. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Well, that's Kaylin uh, Birch, who is a political analyst at the Economist Intelligence Unit in London. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana, reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. So in 25 Central African time, now a new report by the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, UNESCO says education needs to fundamentally change if we are to reach global development goals. The report states that across 22 countries in sub-Saharan Africa, regions that have low average education have 50% chance of experiencing conflict within 21 years. UNESCO has called on governments to start taking inequality seriously. Dr. Aaron Benavort is the director of the Global Education Monitoring Report. Reports at UNESCO. This report is, is the first report uh, that looks at the global goal of education that countries agreed upon uh, in the UN last year. It's a very ambitious goal uh, under the Sustainable Development Agenda, and uh, one of its main targets is to ensure that every child uh, and adolescent around the world completes a full cycle of primary and secondary education. The international community has really you know, set a very high bar for what it hopes all the countries will be able to achieve in the next 15 years. And there are many other aspects to this uh, global goal, but that's one of the main uh, aspects. So this report basically looks at how far countries need to go, uh, what, what's the scale of the challenge that they have, in order to achieve this particular education goal. It looks at how education is related to sustainable development, how it can address issues around hunger, poverty, uh, women's empowerment. One of the things that the report also states is that by 2080, we could see universal primary education in sub-Saharan Africa. Is it something that is quite likely? Uh, Is it achievable? African countries 
over the course of the last 15 years have made enormous strides in uh, expanding access to uh, education for a lot of young children. The most recent data that we have show that about 154 million children of primary school age in Africa now access uh, education. That's about 80% of the school age population. For quite a few countries, that's been a huge success. Places like Burundi, Guinea, Guinea, Niger, Burkina Faso, Mozambique are all cases that have made enormous progress in terms of expanding access to primary education over the last 15 years. The agenda now has become even more ambitious. It isn't just getting kids into primary education, it's now also getting children to complete a full cycle of secondary education. And so Africa, uh, African countries now have a huge challenge in front of them. Uh, based on the most recent figures, it means that there are over 90 million children and adolescents of primary and secondary school age who have yet to gain access to education, who currently are out of school. And this is really uh, the big challenge. If the current rates continue, in other words, if things were to continue the way they are, when would Africa as a region uh, achieve universal primary and secondary education? And um, the, the figures show that uh, in terms of universal primary education, uh, Africa still has a long way to go. So it'll only achieve universal uh, primary and secondary education by the next century. What recommendations does this report make? Countries need to be, get serious about some of the inequalities in terms of access. There are huge differences within almost every African country between girls who live in rural areas who come from poor families. Um, they are in a much more disadvantaged uh, position than, let's say, uh, children, especially boys, who live in urban areas uh, who come from richer households. And these kind of inequalities really need to be at the front and center of uh, the kinds of uh, uh, policies uh, and uh, strategies that uh, African leaders need to uh, put forward in the, in the years to come. If no child is to be left behind, uh, really addressing inequalities within countries is a major issue. There needs to be increased financing, both at the domestic level, which often means prioritizing education and ensuring uh, tax compliance and finding other ways to turn some of the, maybe some of the uh, revenues from some of the commodities that are being sold that could be used for educational purposes. So there needs to be domestic resource mobilization on the one hand, and uh, there needs to be a much greater commitment by international partners to support especially those countries that have very strong policies and plans to make education access universal, both at the primary and secondary level in the years to come. We think that there needs to be greater cooperation. Too much of the work in education is is in in a silo. And this report makes very, very strong recommendations about the importance of working across sectors with the health sector, with uh, uh, the family sector, with the environment, uh, Ministry of Environment. Many different ministries need to come together and put forward plans that really talk about how to address all the needs of children and adolescents and uh, not just look at it uh, within, the, uh, within the confines of the education sector. What other options are there uh, really to ensure that there's sort of a significant progress um, towards the sustainable development um, in the years to come? 
we believe that if there's really going to be significant progress towards sustainable development in the years to come, we can't just rely on education, uh, educating uh, children in school, but there needs to be uh, pronounced uh, efforts to uh, develop uh, lifelong learning opportunities for adults and those young people that have left school. Uh, and this is uh, something that I think uh, more more non-formal education, on-the-job training, uh, other kinds of uh, issues that need to be addressed that uh, are very important in securing the kind of a sustainable f- uh, future that we all want. Dr. Aaron Benavot is the director of the Global Education Monitoring Report at the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization. And he was talking to Komoto Mopulan. Time for news headlines with Joel Anatulo. Thank you, Spumelele. Making headlines, Zimbabwe's High Court has ruled that a two-week ban by police on protests was illegal. Nigeria's army says it has arrested militants suspected of working with Niger Delta Avengers, including their leader at the weekend. And finally, South Africa's Home Affairs Minister Malusi Kikaba has handed out special permits for Lesotho nationals in Rustenburg in the northwest province this morning. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Well, thanks, Cholane. At the just-concluded Global African Investment Summit in Kigali in Rwanda, participants sought to devise ways of fueling African economic integration through trade and investment. The key areas that featured in the two-day meeting revolved around eliminating trade barriers and creating the infrastructure that can enable the regional integration. Sylvanas Karemera reports from Kigali. The conclusion of the Global African Investment Summit tackled some of the vital pillars that were earmarked as paramount for regional integration to proceed. First, is the infrastructure that serves the entire region, than just individual countries in the region. On the issue of creating the infrastructure that can enable regional integration, leaders said it is high-time countries of the region tackle it with an extra attention. Gabriel Negatu, Eastern African Region, director to the African Development Bank, said that intra-trade Africa and investment will not be achieved unless regional infrastructural facilities are put in place. Poor regional infrastructure is is hampering trade, competitiveness and exchange. So unless we are able to improve the quality of our regional infrastructure, and regional infrastructure does not mean I build my road to my border, you build your road. It needs to be planned as a regional program and not just the sum of country infrastructure adding up. Others highlighted the regulatory infrastructure and cross-border contracts that are required to create transportation corridors that are consistent with regional objectives. In a related manner, failing to eliminate trade barriers for intra-regional trade was highlighted as one of the major challenges in the ease of doing business and investments among us regional countries. Lansana Kuyate, a former Prime Minister of the Republic of Guinea and the former Executive Secretary of ECOWAS, said that regional blocks are hampered by the slow pace of lack of implementation, which in return hinders countries' achievements. I think what is missing is implementation. When I became uh, executive secretary of ECOWAS, I found that 80% of protocol were not ratified by any parliament. (laughs) How 
can we move without ratifying you know the treaties the uh, protocols on the fear of some investors injecting funds into africa especially towards regional projects ashish jasal regional controller of etg group said that companies ought to look beyond risks so as to identify rewards i believe to address all these things okay it's very important that we incentivize the producer organizations we build capacities with uh, community based organizations cooperatives self help groups and provide them with the necessary marketing linkages as a company okay everybody says that we are scared of investing in africa so we believe that we are not scared we find that there is a risk but there is a reward also it's only that how you mitigate that risk to find that actual reward meanwhile the levels of intra trade africa remain at under 15% compared to regions such as asia which is over 40%. However, the discussions at the summit drew realistic steps required to eliminate trade barriers by standardizing registration and achieving uniformity towards promoting regional integration. Silvanus Kalimera reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. 17:36 Central African Time is still listening to Africa Digest. Please find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa One. Now, a wide range of healthcare stakeholders gathered in South Africa city of Johannesburg this week for the eHealth Live 2016, a two-day meeting which aimed to accelerate the use of eHealth to strengthen health systems and deliver affordable, quality healthcare to patients. eHealth is described as the use of information and communication technologies for health. Examples include treating patients, conducting research, educating the health workforce, tracking diseases, and monitoring public health. For more on this, here's the editor at South Africa's news agency, eHealth News, Taryn Springle. So the drivers behind eHealth Alive 2016 are really around delivering a health service that's better quality, that reaches more patients, that's more affordable, um, and that really takes care of everyone's needs and puts the patient first. A lot of that can be done or achieved using ICT together with the skills and the workforce that we have in place. So the objective behind the conference was to bring all the stakeholders together, the policymakers, the public sector, government, the private sector, industry, to put them into the same room and discuss some of the issues that are holding back the rollout of e-health as well as talk about some of the successes and the things we can take away from projects that have been impactful and meaningful on the lives of patients. Give us a sense of some of the issues that formed part of the agenda throughout the meeting. There was a fairly good split between some technical issues as well as then operational issues in dealing with patients. Some people um, have shared with us particularly from Freer Hospital in the Eastern Cape how they transformed their health service at the hospital having very poor mortality rates a very bad reputation amongst the community that actually used ICT to gain information and data to be able to respond to the needs and to the, the the deficits in service delivery and turn that around to show remarkable results in terms of infant mortality and that sort of thing so that was one example of how a public hospital has been able to transform their health service We also had heard from international leaders around subjects like standards and interoperability. Very quickly, interoperability is the ability for different health systems to be able to exchange patient information safely and securely and to a set of, of international standards. That's a very difficult process for people to to grasp. It has many layers to it, but we had international 
speakers and local speakers, particularly when presenting um, international bodies who are <clears throat> gave great advice about how to do that seamlessly, how to do it carefully, and to reach the, the goal of being able to share information much faster and much more effectively. Other issues around policy, around measurement and accountability, because that's also another thing that eHealth is a good mechanism for, is around making sure that you know there's accountability in, in terms of the data that we're collecting, how we're using it, how we're using eHealth as a whole, and to ensure that we are actually making improvements, particularly on health outcomes. Are there any myths about eHealth that you feel need to be dispelled? I think there are a number. The top sort of myths I think that are urgently need to dispel is that e-health in some way de-skills our health force or it replaces people, and that is in no way true. We have a, a huge deficit in healthcare workers in this country and throughout the world, and e-health can make their workflow and their processes much easier, much more streamlined, and we can really get nurses and doctors at patients' bedsides and not spending time on administration and capturing information on paper and duplicating that capture. So I think that's one. And the other one is that doctors are resistant to e-health and to, and to change, and I think that that is slowly changing. There are obviously pockets of healthcare practitioners who are, are nervous about engaging on e-health, but I think that a lot more people understand its value, both for the individual patient that they're, they're consulting with and then also on a population health level. And then also the question around patient information, safety and security. I think people think that by opening up systems and exchanging information that that will lead to many more breaches or a violation of privacy. But that too is untrue, particularly because e-health is taken you know, really seriously and people are very committed to making sure that patients are protected. But now, how far have we gone in using technology to ensure that the goal of healthy Africans is actually realized? We've made some good strides. There's obviously a, a long way to go. There's policy and legislature and regulatory issues that need to be addressed and ironed out and finalized. There have been pockets of success. We haven't seen you know, enormous rollouts at this stage just yet, but we are definitely seeing making traction and moving in the right direction, both in the public and the private space. One example is Mom Connect, which is a government-led initiative, an SMS service to pregnant and new moms, sending them health information about themselves and their babies and reminders about vaccinations and that sort of thing. That has been a huge health system change project whereby for the first time um, the national department has been able to do certain things, negotiate with mobile vendors and train nurses and all of that kind of thing. So it's had a lot of impact on a background level to be able to, to sort of pave the way for other national and even larger scale in-health initiatives to gain traction. How critical will it be then to engage people on the ground when using e-health to transform health care on the continent? Yes, it's critical, and we, as far as e-health goes, it's, it's, it's about enabling people, it's about enabling information, it's about empowering healthcare workers, so we have to have buy-in from everybody, from, you know, the community healthcare workers who are, who are collecting data, all the way up to nurses, doctors, and people who are at the bedside, and then, of course, higher up into, into policy and government um, it's absolutely critical that, that everyone um, engage and, and buy into to the benefits of eHealth. What do you hope this meeting will do for the organizations and individuals who came in their numbers this week to join you? So I think one of the objectives for us when we started out was that we wanted to give people practical 
information and tools that they could take away and implement immediately into their organization or their facility, you know, so that there was impact immediately. And I think we've achieved that. We had a master class in interoperability and standards, and there were a number of people who previously were really struggling with the subject who came away with a solid network of people who they could work with, as well as an idea of how to implement the changes that they need to. So that's just one example. But, um, you know, on the whole, I think everyone has come away, they've met people in the community whom they haven't met before, they've been able to network and find common goals and opportunities to collaborate. That is the voice of Terence Springhall. She is the editor of He Health News in South Africa, and she was in conversation there with Elizabeth Lidicha. Please send us your emails on info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. If you want to get hold of us on Twitter, our handle is channelafrica1. That is channelafrica1 on Twitter, and you can engage with us there on any of the content that you hear right here on Channel Africa, or you can suggest new content to us, and maybe we we can look into those stories as well. Let's take a short break. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Kulitran Joy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundé. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Your time is 17.45 Central African time. Here's Wissane Matabula with your economic news. Good evening. Uh, thanks, as Pumilele. Finance Minister Pravin Godan says South Africa's standard of banking regulation is as good as it can be. He also said that the South African economy has potential to grow due to the weak rand. He says U.S. interest rates change will lead to volatility. Answering questions in Parliament, Godan also said the nonsense that is going on in respect of Treasury or himself does not benefit South Africa. We are compliant as South Africa and amongst the best compliant with international requirements and uh, our standards of regulation uh, as best as they can be. The, the nonsense that's going on, which is relevant to another question that will come later, is, is uh, in respect of the Treasury or myself, is not, I think, to the benefit of this country. The International Monetary Fund revised higher its uh, focus for Guinea, whose economy is recovering from an Ebola epidemic to 5.2% from an earlier 3.8%. The recovery is driven by positive supply shocks in the mining, agriculture and energy sectors, which were less affected by the Ebola epidemic. Volkswagen will resume producing cars in Kenya by the end of the year as it looks to sell more vehicles across the East African region. After a four-decade pause in production by the German car maker in Kenya, VW will establish an assembly plant to initially produce 
its Vivo model. Imaging market production is familiar territory for VW, whose familiar battle model was a favorite on the streets of Mexico. But Kenya's car market is dominated by low-priced second-hand imports from countries such as Japan. South Africa state-owned arms manufacturer Dinell has defended its controversial joint venture with steel-cutting company VR Laser to form Dinell Asia. The company says it will be in charge and dictate the terms and conditions on the 10-year contract that costs more than $32 million. The National Treasury has raised questions about the joint venture, which is aimed at giving Dinell a foothold in the Asian market. President Jacob Zuma's son, Duduzane, and the Gupta family are reported to be shareholders of VR Laser. Dinell board chairperson Daniel Manja says the Gupta family does not have shares on VR Laser. The sole shareholder of VR Asia is Mr. Isa, who is the majority shareholder of VR South Africa. The speculation in the media that members of the Gupta family are involved in Dinell Asia it's false. None of them is a shareholder to Dinell Asia. There's only one single shareholder of VR Asia. So we just want to put that record straight. Uh, members have read a lot of articles on how Dinell is captured by uh, members of a certain family. And that is absolutely neither here nor there. They are not shareholders of Dinelation. A nephew of South African uh, President Jacob Zuma will pay 1.8 million US dollars to the liquidators of gold mining company Aurora. A settlement has been reached between Trade Union Solidarity and Kulubu Sezuma after a court last year ruled he and other directors stripped the company of assets, leaving thousands of workers jobless and destitute. A judge found that Zuma and the directors acted in a reckless and fraudulent manner when they stripped the assets of two mines operated by their company, Aurora. Judge Eberhand Bert. Bettersman uh, ordered the directors and associates involved in Aurora Empowerment Systems to pay shareholders and liquidators $140 million compensation for their role in the demise of the operations. Shell Nigerian unit uh, Shell Petroleum Development has lifted force majeure on natural gas supplies to Nigeria Liquefied Natural Gas Corporation effective today following a pipeline repair. The force majeure was declared in August following a leak on the Eastern Gas Gathering System pipeline. Financial indicators, the dollar at 14.21, South African rents at 10.57, Botswana Pula at 9.87, Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.74 to the British pound and 0.89 against the euro. Commodities, gold $1,351, platinum $1,099 per fine ounce. Brand crude oil is at $47.65 per barrel. And that's your economics news. Thank you very much, Usani. It's 17.50 Central African time. It's time for Sports News with Neto Chamane.
Good evening, sport fans. With your latest sport news at this hour, I'm Neto and ETO Chemani. Thank you, Spumelele. Starting off with athletics news. Almas Ayana will sign off her stellar 2016 season in Brussels on Friday by trying to add the 5,000 meters world record to the incredible 10,000 mark she set at the Rio Olympic Games last month. World 5,000 meter champion Ayana, among more than 40 Rio medalists competing in the final Diamond League meeting of the year, has every chance of eclipsing the record of 14 minutes, 11.15 seconds, set by fellow Ethiopian Tirunesh Dibaba in Oslo eight years ago. Ayana came Came close to that mark when clocking 14, 12.59 in Rome in June, but moved into a new stratosphere with her extraordinary exploits in the 25-lap event in Rio. Cyclist Roxy Pence aims to contribute to the Team SA Metal Tally in Rio. Stellenbosch-based Pence, who turns 28 next month, will be competing at her third Paralympics, Beijing 2008 and London 2012 being the other two. Former world number one Caroline Wozniacki reached the semifinals of the U.S. Open with a ruthless 6-0-6-2 win over wounded Latvian Anastasija Sevastova. Sevastova, the first Latvian to reach a Grand Slam quarterfinal, saw her U.S. Open hopes come to a painful end when she rolled her ankle, chasing down a ball on Wozniacki's opening serve. After watching Sevastova crash to the court and then get up, Wozniacki said she had taken no chances with her spot in the semifinals on the line. With her opponent hobbled, the Dane showed no mercy as she moved in for a kill, keeping Savastova running from sideline to sideline. I think I was just um, extra focused because I saw her fall um, in that second game and she stood up and, and I knew that you know if she can still walk and she can still put weight on it and stuff, then you know, she's going to obviously go more for her shots and, and, and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I kept cool. I kept serving well and, and just kind of made her run. So I'm, I'm pleased with how I, I managed to keep composed. While there was no room for sympathy on Arthur Ashe Stadium court, Wozniacki knows the damage of a bad ankle can cause having been sidelined herself for three months this season. The 26-year-old was forced to withdraw from the French Open due to a sore ankle and then had a first-round exit at Wimbledon, sinking her world ranking to 74 by the time she arrived at Flushing Meadows. But for Wozniacki, the ranking doesn't seem to matter. When she plays in New York, as the city, it's the city she calls home, and the 26-year-old says, it really helps her to relax. <laughs> I definitely do feel like I have a bit of an advantage there. Um, I sleep at home in my own bed, have home-cooked food, um, have my friends and family here, and um, I also feel like I have a bit of a home court advantage when I step out on court. The crowd is always supporting me and are, are really sweet to me, so that means a lot too. And, and then I think it helps that I've played so well here in the past, so it brings. it's just a great combination. And finally, on to cricket years. The International Cricket Council has rejected a two-tier test championship. Six of the ICC's ten full members, Australia, England, South Africa, New Zealand, Pakistan and West Indies, are thought to have supported the plan. However, the Board of Control for Cricket in India, BCCI, was the most significant opponent of the idea. But Cricket's governing body did reveal proposals for a test championship playoff match every two years and said they hope to introduce it by 2019. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
is Africa Digest. All right, it is 17.55 Central African time. Let's check about top stories. Amnesty International says the upcoming UN summit is unlikely to have any significant impact on the grave humanitarian crises. The situation remains tense in Gabon as presidential challenger Jean Bing and his followers continue to dispute the re-election of Ali Bongo. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Pumela Lezondi, producer Luanda, Mahomet, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you very much for listening. Send us emails, info@channelafrica.co.za, SMS plus 278233259205. Tweet Channel Africa 1. Here's P-Square and Rick Ross. Beautiful Onyinye. Because I was all alone, was so bad. And there she goes. She touched my heart and said, "The best in her nose go." Was so glad. The way she keeps me smiling, it brings me joy. She proves this love in its real. What a beautiful So you want I can fly away Straight to the sky Just you and I Girl I know the lie Can't you see You were sent from above And you know you're my heart and my sweetness Is this love, is this love I don't know but I know what I'm feeling My God be my witness you're my princess hey, hey. The way she keeps me smiling It brings me joy She proves this love in its real Within my heart there's nobody else Make you give me your hand Let me take you
gon' make the earth shake. I look into the mirror, all I do is stare. In the back of my mind, all I see is her. Turn up the music, we bump in P-square. Number one in the game, and we gon' be here. Always making hits to my convict. We talking money, or you talking nonsense? Making slow love to my baby gal. Got them big trucks pulling up everywhere. You only live once, and that's the anthem. All your negative energy feed cancer. I can look into our eyes for my whole life. We can make love for the whole night. Huh. Take my hand, baby. I just wanna be a man, baby. Yeah, yeah. 